I'm Mark Vinette, and this is The Story of America. In this special crossover episode, join me and Steve Guerra of History of the Papacy podcast as we turn back the clock to 1494 and examine the Treaty of Tordesillas, sanctioned by Pope Julius II, which divided newly explored territories, including North America, between Portugal and Spain. I hope you enjoy part two of this discussion. Here is a short synopsis of the Treaty of Tordesillas. Signed at Tordesillas in Spain on June 7, 1494, this agreement divided the newly discovered lands outside Europe between the Portuguese and Spanish empires. The dividing line of demarcation was about halfway between Portugal's Cape Verde Islands off the west coast of Africa and the islands explored by Christopher Columbus on his first voyage in 1492, which were claimed for Spain. The lands to the east would belong to Portugal and the lands to the west to Spain. Steve, some of our listeners are probably asking themselves, why aren't they talking about the French or the English or the Dutch? But the key thing to understand is that in 1492 and the early 1490s, the English and French and Dutch and other countries aren't really part of this age of discovery. It's mostly Portugal. And now Spain is getting into the game with Christopher Columbus. Columbus sails successfully and explores new territories. And that brings us up to the treaty that will basically divvy up all of these lands amongst these two emerging superpowers from the Iberian Peninsula. The treaty was signed in 1494. Who was it negotiated amongst and who signed the treaty? The treaty was signed between Spain and Portugal. Technically, the people who are responsible for that were the kings and queens of each of those kingdoms. So Columbus, when he comes back, we don't know what Columbus really thought that he discovered. He went pretty much to his grave thinking that he had discovered the Indies. Most scholars in Europe at the time didn't think that he actually did get to India or Cathay or Chipangu or anything like that. But what they're really waiting for is when Columbus comes back from his second journey, they're waiting for more information to come in. The Portuguese and the Spanish are waiting. How far does he go? How many leagues does he travel? What can he figure out about longitude? What lands has he discovered? As soon as Columbus returns with all this new information, these previous treaties and bowls, like the Treaty of Alcasobas, they were in tatters. Was this new land area part of Portugal's area of, in, of exclusive exploitation? Ferdinand and Isabella, they had to act really quickly. So what do they do? They go directly to their dear old friend, Pope Alexander VI. He's the Pope now. They were able to get Alexander to issue a series of papal bulls. And the most important one was called Intercatera, which was signed on May 3rd in 1493. And then an addendum to that bull, which was actually written in the summer of 1493, but was backdated to May 4th of 1493. So one day after the original Intercatera was signed. This new bull of Intercatera granted Spain a monopoly over their newly discovered lands. 
Initially, though, Columbus's discoveries didn't look very promising. He didn't really find a ton of gold or silver he, in the Caribbean, just tiny amounts. The spices and flora and fauna that he brought back were not the pepper and cumin and cardamom, etc., like those types of things that people were really excited. As a matter of fact, like what we call chili peppers, like habaneros and jalapenos, they were named peppers. They were called peppers by Columbus as a marketing ploy because they were spicy and it gave him something to come home. And he was like, oh, look at, look at this new kind of pepper I found. <laughs> Even though they're completely unrelated to pepper, as in the black pepper. So this Intercatera papal bull created a new line of demarcation between Spain's area of control and the Portuguese line of control. As a matter of fact, these papal bulls didn't even mention Portugal. You would only know that they were talking about Portugal through inference. They affirmed the doctrine of the right to first discovery. So that really helped Portugal too. So the Spanish couldn't lay claim to something that the Portuguese had discovered and the Portuguese couldn't lay claim to something that, say, the Spanish discovered. But it also locked out all the other powers at the time, the French, the Holy Roman Empire, the English. And these are all Catholic countries at this point. You don't have France that has a huge Huguenot contingency. You don't have England that, that is, turns into a Protestant country. They're all Catholic, and it completely cuts them out of this whole new age of discovery under well, the, the threat of excommunication. The attitude towards these papal bulls and the treaty that other governments had was expressed by Francis, the king of France, who declared, The sun shines for me as it does for others. I would very much like to see the clause of Adam's will by which I should be denied my share of the world. I think that's a great quote because it shows the thought at that time. England tries a couple of early voyages of discovery that don't really go anywhere. France has a couple of early ones, I'm talking like in the early 1500s, that don't lead to very much. And they're still at this time, they're really under this threat of excommunication. And the threat of excommunication brings with them the threat of being not only cut out of the spiritual trade of Europe, but also the political trade of Europe. Let's get back to the treaty and look at it from a technical point of view. How was the world or the known world divided by this treaty that was signed by representatives of Portugal and Spain? The original 1493 line from Intercatera made the line 100 leagues west of the Cape Verde Islands. What they said was the 46th degree longitude. Problem was, they didn't really precisely know what a degree of longitude was. So there was a lot of flex in what that is. 100 leagues would have been approximately 550. 55, if you want to be precise, kilometers or about 350-ish miles west of the Cape Verde Islands. Okay, Steve, so now let's get into the details and the nitty-gritty of the Treaty of Tordesillas. Okay, so that was signed in June 7th of 1494, the negotiations that started earlier in the spring of 1494, and they are waiting to learn what had occurred during Columbus's second voyage. 
really at this point in 1494, they're waiting with bated breath about what Columbus is learning from his second voyage. The Portuguese, they were bargaining from a bad position. The Pope was against them. And they weren't strong enough militarily to take on Spain if the came to that point. The Treaty of Tordesillas, it moved the demarcation line a few hundred miles west of the Intercatera line. The Treaty of Tordesillas was affirmed by a papal bull, a qua pro bono pacis, which wasn't actually signed until about a decade later in 1506, but that moved the line further west about 900 miles. Portugal claimed that they needed that extra breathing space to get around to their new African and Indian holdings. So they didn't want to say, oh, wait, we accidentally went into the Spanish territory and be under the threat of excommunication or be considered pirates so that Spain could claim their ships. That's at least their negotiating position. It's possible, though, that Joao or John II was trying to get the best deal he could at that conference. And Joao may have, uh, how do you say, like sandbagged or held back on some information at the conference to protect what the new Brazil discovery. Brazil wasn't officially discovered until about 1500, but it's a possibility that they knew about Brazil as early as then and wanted to get the line moved over as far as they could so that that little section of South America could be claimed by them at a later point. Like I said, Joao was not in a great position at that conference, and he also had the worry that he might be invaded by Castile and Aragon. So through this Treaty of Tordesillas, he was able to protect the Spice Islands, Malacca, India, and their African trade, which at least in the 1490s was exponentially more lucrative than what the Spanish trade was with the West Indies. So like what the Portuguese held in real Indies in India and in Indonesia was just a much better thing for them economically. So he wanted to do everything that he could do to protect that. Portugal and Spain seem to have negotiated and signed the treaty without consulting the Pope. Why do some call the resulting line the papal line of demarcation? Like we had said earlier, the various papal bulls were actually more important than the treaty itself. The bulls were what made those treaties legal and enforceable, so they needed the Pope's stamp of approval to make a treaty official. It is called the papal demarcation because the papal bulls are what gave that treaty legitimacy. Thus, uh, that series of papal bulls, including Intercatera in 1493, and then um, the one done by Julius II, are really what got the whole ball rolling of an idea of a demarcation line. Steve, a pope did eventually ratify the treaty. Let's talk a bit about that pope, the famous Pope Julius II. He's another one of the great popes. His name previous to Pope Julius II was Giuliano della Rovere, and he was from the famous della Rovere family of Italy. He was the great warrior pope, and he fought wars all over central Italy to secure his secular domains of the papal states. 
So his real focus was never on what was going on much outside of his really narrow focus on central Italy. That was his main focus. Wasn't he also Michelangelo's Pope that commissioned him to do the Sistine Chapel? And the movie with Charlton Heston, Julius was the Pope played by Rex Harrison, based on a famous, famous book. And the movie was a big, big hit. It's a really good movie. It's a great movie. Charlton Heston in the agony and ecstasy. That was a big, big movie at the time based on a big book. Charlton Heston, Rex Harrison. It's all about the painting of the Sistine Chapel. And it's the battle of wills between Michelangelo, a young Michelangelo, and Pope Julius II, who is the warrior pope. And we see him fighting battles at the beginning of the movie. When and why did Pope Julius ratify this treaty? So that's a really good question. There's not a ton of information on that. Pope Julius did put his seal of approval on the treaty, like we said, with the A. Quae Pro Bono Pacis in 1506. The thing was, Julius really wasn't involved in Spanish and Portuguese politics like Alexander VI was. The Portuguese and the Spanish were good with the treaty, and it didn't really remarkably change the balance of power between the two from that 1493 treaty. But there must have been some reason that they wanted to have it officially sanctioned by him. The end of Alexander's life, there was a lot of internal conflict there. Then Julius has a lot of problems he's dealing with. So it may have just taken time for this kind of not a huge change to the treaty to just work its way through the bureaucracy. There wasn't a big political intrigue or something really meaty or juicy like that for why Julius held out so long or why it took so long to get the official bull to legally recognize the treaty. It could have been these other considerations that were going on. I know that Portugal and Spain largely respected the treaty, but the other European powers, as you alluded to, and indigenous nations, however, did not sign the treaty and generally ignored it. France was not in a great position and England weren't in great positions to exploit or to get into the voyages of discovery. They had to find some Italian or Genoese navigators and they did and they made some discoveries early on, but they weren't really able to make a lot out of these discoveries. And as far as the Holy Roman Empire goes or went at that time, it was really a patchwork of individual states. So they didn't really have the ability to garner a ton of resources to set sail. And they were mostly a land-based empire to begin with. So these major powers really weren't in a good spot to take on Portugal and Spain, who had such an early head start on them because they were the early adopters, as it were. So that begs the question, how was the treaty enforced? Because basically with Jacques Cartier and the French, they were thumbing their nose at the treaty. And then John Cabot and the British, they were thumbing their nose at the treaty. And basically the next decades, the other European countries were saying, we don't care about your treaty. I think Denmark never gave up the claim to Greenland. Probably nobody particularly cared what Denmark had to say, but I don't think they ever gave up claim. And that comes up more so later, I think, with the French and the English than it does with the Treaty of Tordesillas, because really by the time Martin Luther and the Reformation come, then that completely changes and none of them really care or respect the Treaty of Tordesillas as far as it goes with excommunication. 
the Protestant Reformation, that really took a lot of the sting out of the main excommunication idea. So we start to see that France and the really the, every other country in Europe that wasn't involved with the treaty, they start to care less and less about the treaty. The indigenous people of North and South America, they still have a problem with this treaty to this day. And obviously, they didn't appreciate their lands getting carved up by two countries on the other side of the planet. We also have the issue of the Norse claims, uh, really Denmark, that had a claim to particularly Greenland. Now, we all know from Mark's podcast about the discoveries uh, by the Vikings much earlier, but Greenland comes into play because Greenland wasn't officially abandoned until sometime in the mid-1400s. Some new archaeology has come up that shows that Climate change may have played a part into Greenland's colony being not wiped out, but it's sort of fading out. But one thing that's interesting and that ties us all back together is some of the Spanish and the Portuguese conquests, such as the central Atlantic islands, the Madeiras, the Azores, etc., and their conquests into Africa seriously cut into the Greenland trade on ivory. The Greenlanders made most of their money by trading walrus ivory to Europe. The Spanish and the Portuguese at this time made big inroads into being able to trade the much cheaper and more abundant elephant ivory. So in a way, it could have, you know, if they hadn't started to make these inroads into trade into Africa, you may have seen a situation where the Greenlander colonies did carry on. That's hard to say, but Greenland would have definitely come into a lot more conflict if Spanish and Portuguese trade hadn't really devastated their economy than the Protestant Reformation comes, of which Denmark uh, fully embraced, it sort of takes Denmark completely out of the equation. But they have a legitimate claim to these areas that were new discoveries. Had they stayed Catholic, Denmark, they had the rights of first discovery to those lands. What does the Portuguese-speaking modern nation of Brazil owe to this late 15th century document? Well, it's interesting. The second line, like we said, it bumped over the papal line of demarcation enough that it just sliced through the corner of Brazil. So that gave the Portuguese an inroad into colonizing Brazil, which would have really, under Intercatera line, but under almost most of the circumstances, all of North and South America are solidly inside of the Spanish realm of control. But that little slice of the later in Treaty of Tordesillas line gave Portugal legitimate claim to that part of South America. And there's some other, it doesn't really play into North American history, but that's the reason why the Spanish could lay claim to the Philippines, because that line of demarcation didn't just cut through the Western Hemisphere, it goes all the way through the entire North-South circumference of the planet. So places that would normally be completely under the, what you would think should be under the Portuguese's area of control, like the Philippines, actually are under Spain's. Where in Spain is Tordesillas located? 
Tordesillas is just outside of the city of Valladolid, which um, may not be on everybody's radar, but it's the key point to Tordesillas is it wasn't terribly far from Portugal. It was really fairly much what you would say on the border, a couple of miles inside of the border from Portugal. Is that why the treaty was signed in that town? Yeah, really kind of neutral ground, uh, so to speak, so that they're still, you're, you know, you're talking about medieval times at this point, they could play some dirty politics. So it was a way to keep everybody honest on where they were having these negotiations. Where are the originals of the treaty kept? One copy's kept in the National Archives of Portugal in Lisbon, the Arquivo Nacional Torre do Tombo. That's their National Archives. The other copy is in the Arquivo General de Indias, the General Archive of the Indies in Seville, Spain. This is a place, if anybody out there is really interested in the discoveries of the New World, the Archive of the Indies in Seville is absolutely low to the gills with incredibly important documents. I think it holds all of Columbus's documents, Cortez's documents, the writer Cervantes. They're all in there. Well, that's actually where Christopher Columbus is buried, or part of him anyway. Yes, Seville became a really important launching point for these uh, voyages of the Spanish. I'd love to get into that archive. I mean, I'm, obviously, they're never going to let me go and thumb through the treaty or Columbus's originals, but I'm sure they have a place where um, regular people can go through and look. Have you ever been to Spain or Portugal? Believe it or not, my family, we had been planning for a year to go on a, essentially a road trip through Portugal and Spain starting the second week of April in 2020. We were going to fly to Lisbon, visit some friends there. We were going to visit some of the key launching points of the Voyage of Discovery. We were going to stay in this part of Portugal called the Algarve, which actually Prince John II spent a lot of his time in this area. Then we were going to drive through the great towns of southern Andalusia, Cadiz, Huelva, and stay in Seville and then drive north and pass through Badajoz, where one of the conferences that was after the Treaty of Tordesillas that helped smooth out a couple of the other details of the Treaty of Tordesillas was held in Badajoz. That trip got completely wiped out by the corona lockdowns of 2020. And uh, at this point, we don't have any plans to go back, but hopefully it'll happen soon. I've been to Spain and Portugal. I'm quite fond of Portuguese fado. It's a type of folk mm-hmm. music characterized by mournful tunes and lyrics. How about the home of the Pope, Steve? Have you ever visited Rome? And if so, when were you last in Vatican City? The last time I had a chance to visit Rome was in 2004, which is a shame. I'd like to go back. We stayed in a hotel that the parking lot of this hotel backed up to the walls of the Vatican. So that was really cool. So we we went and did all the Vatican museums. Rome's one of those places you could stay there for years and never get a good grasp. Have you traveled to Rome? I visited Rome for the Great Jubilee in February 2000 at the start of the second millennium celebrations when Pope John Paul's health was visibly in decline. I entered St. Peter's Basilica through the Holy Door. Most of the time, the Holy Door is cemented shut. On the occasion of the Jubilee year, the Pope unsealed the door as a symbol of opening the door of grace. 
Pilgrims visiting to gain the Jubilee indulgence entered the Basilica through this special door, and so did I. Throughout most of the Jubilee year, long lines were queued up to enter the Holy Door. Rome is the eternal city, and I guess I'm eternally grateful that I was able to spend some time there in the year 2000. We toured the Vatican museums. That that museum trip winds up letting you off. Your last stop is at the Sistine Chapel. Honestly, by the time you wait in line to get into the Vatican museums and you walk through miles and miles of just the most amazing art you've ever seen in your life, your sensory overload by the time you get to the Sistine Chapel. And I think that that's probably Rome in a nutshell, is that you have to spend as much time there as you possibly can because the whole place, it's history overload, it's sensory overload, it's everything, culture overload. Well, I guess this is a fitting place to end today's discussion. It's been really interesting, and I really enjoyed spending time with you, Steve. Thank you for granting me the honor and privilege of sharing your wonderful audience. It's been a real pleasure, and I hope we get to do it again soon. Oh, thank you so much. I'm so very appreciative that you thought of having me on to talk about this fascinating subject. I appreciate getting a chance to talk with your audience, and definitely you'll be hearing from the both of us soon. Wonderful.